Good morning, everyone. Good to see you this morning. Wait, did I just say good morning? Hmm. Well, J.R. Tolkien's classic, The Hobbit, the story told, Gandalf the Grey meets Bilbo Baggins. And Bilbo Baggins says the same thing. He says, good morning, said Bilbo, and he meant it. The sun was shining. The grass was very green. But Gandalf looked at him from under that long, bushy eyebrows that stuck out further than the brim of his shady hat. What do you mean, he said. Do you mean to wish me a good morning? Or do you mean that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or perhaps you mean to say that you feel good on this particular morning? Or are you simply stating that this is a morning to be good on? All of them at once, I suppose, said Bilbo. This is the central theme of my message this morning. Its title is Good Days and Bad Days. It's drawn from one of the last verses. You have days of prosperity and you have days of adversity. We all use the expression good morning or have a good day. Or, good night. In our minds, we remember some days as good days, other days as bad days, yes? God wants to challenge that comfortable notion, that controlling notion that we really know what's good for us, what's good for our friends, what's good for our families, what's good for our church. In fact, Solomon is going to use some very real illustrations to help us understand we don't fully and really know what's good for us at any given moment in any given circumstance. We know how we feel about good days and bad days, and I don't mean to trivialize the pleasure of good days or the hurt of a bad day. I have them too. I know how they feel. But we are missing two key ingredients in our lives to be sure of our observations and conclusions about good days and bad days. We lack the moral integrity to define goodness. We are fallen. And we also lack the eternal perspective to understand purpose. We are finite. And that's the central theme this morning. Good days and bad days. We have reached the center of the book of Ecclesiastes, if you didn't know that. We have finished section one. The first section has a lot more to do with Solomon making his point that apart from God, life is meaningless and unsatisfying, ultimately. Although along the way, he's illustrated his point, but that his point has been to make his point. We reach the second half, and you might not be surprised that he's now going to apply and illustrate his point. And while he does that, like any good teacher, he'll refer back to the point he made so that we derive the implications. Two questions dominate the second half of the book. They're both in my passage this morning. They are both asked in Ecclesiastes 6.12. If you glance there for a moment, you'll see two questions. Question one, who knows what is good for man while he lives? Can you feel the weight of this? While he lives... The few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. 
What a loaded question. But that's the question. It's dripping with irony and rhetor. It's a rhetorical question, obviously. And the second question, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The first question, who knows what is good for man, is explored starting in chapter 7, verse 1, and actually runs beyond my sermon, and we'll run into what Pastor Brian will teach in the coming weeks, all the way through chapter 8 and verse 17. And in fact, the, uh, at the end of my sermon, there is a phrase that is stated, that is repeated multiple times through that section, and it is the idea that we are not able to find out. It answers the question, what is good for man? Ah, it's hard for us to know. (laughs) This question is there hanging, and for several sermons and for one larger section in the book, chapter 7, 14, 24, 28, and 29, and again in 8, 17, like a repeating drum, a punctuating phrase, Solomon says man is not able to find out. Man will not find out. Man is not able to find out. The second question in chapter 6, verse 12, we'll begin to pick up in chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll handle it through the end of eleven six. And this is the question, who knows what's coming tomorrow? Who holds the future? Who has knowledge of what's next? And again, there is a repeated phrase that will show up multiple times in that section. You don't know, you won't know, in you is not knowing. <laughs> so these two questions form the structure for almost all the rest of the book. What's good for man? And who holds the future? And so starting today, and again next week for sure, we'll deal with the first question before we have a few sermons on the second question. And of course, the implied answer is, who knows what's good for man? And who knows what's coming down the pipe? Well, only God knows what's really good for us and what the future holds. And Solomon's going to try to explain to us that the sooner we come to grips with that, the happier, more content, more satisfied, more in tune with how life should be, we will be. Well, a We took a break, I think, for a week on Ecclesiastes, but the last time we were in Ecclesiastes, we studied uh, wealth and contentment. Do you remember uh, the story of the two men? Clearly, people want to enjoy life, and many try to do that, enjoy life, by accumulating as much wealth and possessions and prosperity as they can. You remember one man had it all, lost it in a bad business deal. The second man had it all, but God didn't give him the power and the ability to enjoy his life. Sad stories. I think it's fair to say this morning, tell me if you agree with this, enjoying life probably means having more good days than bad days. That's not a controversial statement, is it? (laughs) If I have a good life, an enjoyable life, I have more good days than bad days. But again, what's the question this morning? Who knows what's really good? Who's evaluating? I want to have good days. I'm not a pessimist. But again, what's a good day? So that's our task this morning. Well, it's a lot of verses. It's, seven, it's uh, 17 verses. My friend Doug Wilson's always a pessimist, and I was like, I don't know what you're going to do with that passage, you know. And uh, I think I finally found something, Doug. It did take me a little while. We'll see this morning. Chapter 6, let me give you this structure here, verses 10, 11, and 12, we get some instruction. 
Chapter 7, if, you have a, if you're not using your phone, it'll be way more apparent to you in the Bible. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, we have uh, poetry. Proverbs. Could you feel that? If we were reading a series of Proverbs. And then the last two verses, we come back to instruction. You could think of it this way. Solomon's going to use the first three verses to raise the questions he wants us to think about. Okay? I already told you what they are. He's going to raise the questions. Then in chapter, in ver- chapter 7, verses 1 through 12, in the poetic Proverbs section, he wants to demonstrate the validity of his questions to us in case we want to be dismissive and be like, I, I don't even care, dude. That doesn't apply to me. He wants us to consider and feel that these questions actually matter, that we, we can learn from them. And along the way, even though they're illustrative of his point, they are Proverbs and they communicate divine wisdom. So they kind of have a twofold purpose. And in the last two verses, he answers the questions. He gives us, he begins to give us answers to the questions he's posed. He tries to help us see the big picture beyond our normal understanding and perspective. All right, so there's your introduction. Let's jump into the text. Um, Good days and bad days, I said. So from a sermonic standpoint, I tried to use some common expressions that would help carry the day here. Point number one, have a good day. What do you mean by good? Reread with me, along with me as I read verses uh, 10, 11, and 12 quickly. Whatever has come to be has already been named. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what's the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? The final verses of Ecclesiastes 6 here are a reflection, again, on the early chapters of Genesis. We've seen this before. The fall of mankind. It repeatedly references Adam. It it talks about the naming of things. It is known what man, remember man is the word Adam. We know what Adam is. And Ecclesiastes has consistently said that man is dust. The words Adam and dust are similar because man was made from the dust and man is headed back to the dust. Due to the fact that in Eden, what did Adam try to do? He tried to dispute with someone who was stronger than him. Also, this idea of good. Who knows what is good for man? Who knows what is good for Adam? Does that sound familiar to you? This phrase calls us back to the time before the fall when God repeatedly said of the creation that it was Good. God God is the moral declarative of what is good and bad, of what is right and wrong. And this is dripping with all of this references to rediscovering Eden. But even though God declared everything good now, however, fallen man, fallen Adam's days pass like a shadow. Only God can tell us what will happen when we pass off the scene. Recalling the curse and how things were good prior to the fall should cause us to long for the promised Savior of Genesis 3.15, who will come and reverse the curse. And that's what Jesus came to do. But have a good day. How do you have a good day? I think there are a couple things here we could think about, and that's like knowing your limits. You got to know your limits is what 
Solomon seems to imply here. Number one, you are not strong enough, powerful enough, or sovereign enough to ensure a good day. He says, you, you, what has already been has been named, it's known, you're not able to be disputing with God. The, the one who is stronger than him is obviously the Lord, and it gets named. He, he references God at the end of the chapter. You're not strong enough, powerful enough, sovereign enough to ensure you have a good day. You know, just a week ago today, I was at the Grand Canyon. My wife posted some beautiful pictures. Even some of you made some beautiful comments about the wonderful beauty of God's creation. And yeah, I understand that, but think about this. If the Grand Canyon was really cut in a relatively short period of time as a result of a global flood in Noah's day, then the Grand Canyon is less a mark of God's creation originally and way more a great illustration and reminder of the sinfulness of mankind and the judgment of God upon sin. Man is not able to dispute with one stronger than him. Do you feel it? And I, and I don't think, I, I loved it. I, don't, I understand that God makes beautiful things. I, I don't, both can be true. Do you understand what I'm saying? Know your limits. You, you don't know. In fact, he goes on in verse 11 and says, we try to act like we're in control, but it's just empty talk. It's just empty talk. The more words, the more vanity. We, we somehow feel like we have to know and, and explain why we're having good days and bad days. In fact, it shows up in our hearts and lives because I, I know in my own life when I have a series of bad days or things aren't going well, I'm hard on myself and I'm, I'm stoic and I feel like I'm to blame. And when I have a good day and a series of good days, I feel like, yeah, I got the world by the tail and I'm puffed up a little bit. Uh, and it's all centered in what? In self. I read a sermon this week in preparing for this. Someone did a, a nice job that I got hooked into reading the whole thing. And um, it reminded me of experience I had riding the antique cars at amusement parks. I think I was at Disney World I was maybe six. It's the first time that they sat me in one of those cars with the track down the middle. The kids get in, and for the first time in their lives, they have a steering wheel in front of them. They've never driven before. Dad is sitting beside them, and as the car, moving two miles an hour, comes up to the curb, the dad goes in mock panic. Turn! It's a curve! (laughs) And I I remember my own experience. Bang, bang, bang. I'm I'm just banging into that thing. And the, the idea here is that the kids are not in control of the car the track is. And no matter how much the kid steers, the track goes the way it wants to go. The way we describe the past and plan for the future demonstrates our need, our desire, our want to feel like we've got this. That we're in control. In fact, I, I, I wrote here, if you describe yourself as a control freak, then you're not going to like this sermon. But it might be good for you. In other words, as people under the sun, we try to come off as in control of our world. But you put us next to God and you'll see us for who we really are. We might think that we name everything. We named all the plants and animals that we discover But God went through great, and God made the world, and he called it, and he made the day, and he called it, he made the light and called it day, and the darkness he called, I mean, God God did this. 
not us. Another quote from that sermon said, we might like to think somewhere in the Bible it says, God knows we're awesome, but it actually just says God knows we're dust. And then number three, under this uh, first thought about knowing your limits. Um, Verse 12, again, making my point, you don't really know what's good for you. Who knows what is good for man? You might say, well, I know what's good for me. You are missing the point. It's actually just that personal. You don't even know what's good for yourself. And in fact, I know as myself as a parent, when sometimes my children are struggling with things, I want to go talk to friends who aren't so close to the situation so that I can get perspective. Everyone feel me? Right? We, 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 you know, we're so emotionally tied to something. Well, how much more emotionally tied are you to yourself? We are nearsighted. We are myopic. We do not understand. This is what the teacher is saying, the preacher Solomon. The future is determined by God. God is sovereign, not you. God's will prevails, not yours. Whatever happens has already been determined by God in the past. We are so weak that we are not able to contend with God about his will. God is the powerful creator. He is in control. Does the clay say to the potter, I don't like how you made me? Isaiah, our friend, told us that. Truthfully, the things we think that are good for us are often bad. We're going to illustrate that in a minute. I'm not going to give you random illustrations because Solomon has 12 proverbs I don't even have time to deal with. So we'll use his illustrations. Many times the things we think are bad often end up being good for us. And we don't know what tomorrow is bringing. Tomorrow will be a good day. Tomorrow will be a bad day. We don't know. Will I be happy tomorrow? Or will I be mourning We don't know. The future is hidden. We're not in control. What do we do? Well, there is a verse in chapter 4 of Ecclesiastes that Solomon condemned a thought. He said, the fool folds his own hands and eats his own flesh. The idea of, well, then I won't play. I will take my toys and go home. That is not the right response. Some people think it's all in it. Well, if God's in control, then what's the point? No, that is not right. In fact, our second point here today, not just have a good day, but some days are better than others. Point number two. And we'll look at this poetry section. Some days are better than others. This is a set of Proverbs with two purposes. One is the obvious truth that's contained in each proverb for our good. They're Proverbs. They're a general truth stated in the widest sense as if there were no exceptions. They are helpful for us. If they had been written today and marketed, they might be called chicken soup for the soul. They're pithy little expressions, but these are inspired by God. And they have wisdom for us in and of themselves. The larger purpose of this series of Proverbs is to demonstrate to us that we really don't know what's good for us on any given day in any particular circumstance. He's illustrating his point. The Proverbs actually seem to draw back on chapter 3, where we are told in another poetic section, do you remember these poetic sections? There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, a time to keep quiet and a time to speak. These, all of these 
sections, all of these expressions and concepts and themes from chapter 3, he grabs and uses them again here in chapter 7. Why? Solomon takes us back to chapter 3 where he first instructed us that God is in control of everything. So we would have this in the front of our minds, even reinforcing what he's saying as we read these verses. Listen to these verses from chapter 3 that are apart from the poetry. Chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season, a time for every matter under heaven. Do you remember that? God's ordained it. Do you remember, I believe it's chapter 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. That idea of beautiful or appropriate. That this is the right thing at the right time. Do you remember that? Um, Do you remember, I think it's chapter 3, verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear Him. Can, can you feel this? It's the same idea that Paul wrote uh, in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And Paul referenced Isaiah 2. Will what is molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? The pot does not dispute with its maker, which is stronger than it. We are to take these Proverbs that the preacher gives us now, these 12 Proverbs, and understand them in the context that we are receiving them. The entire context just reinforces the sovereignty of our almighty, loving, heavenly Father. Before we look at the Proverbs, I want to make sure you don't miss something that's similar about all of them. Eleven times in these Proverbs, there's a word that's repeated. It's the word better. You look at that real fast, better, better, better. This is better than that. 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 Um, in my house, I have a, a hillbilly father-in-law who might be watching on the live stream tonight. And the Hebrew word for good and better are, are the same word. They're just amplified English. is kind of a weird language. So it might be good and gooder. Do you understand that? And he would say gooder is why I say that. And if that's not good enough, he'd say much more gooder. And that would drive Deborah just, just crazy, I understand that. But this, this, it's just going through there. Do you feel the, the con? He's like, so some days are better than others. We go, under the sun, we do got to make some choices. There are some clues. We are made in the image of God. We're not incompetent. God does want us to participate in the divine plan. And from our perspective, it is possible to affect our lives down here on earth. Although there are many Proverbs, and I don't have time to take them all, uh, we'll take them in groups because there are some themes. We could take them individually and mine each one out, but at 12 minutes to go, that's not going to happen. Grouping number one, death is better than birth. He gives this idea of death to help us think about what's good and bad for us. Do you understand? Death. He says death is better than birth. Funerals are better than feasts. Sorrow is better than laughter. A good name is, chapter 7, verse 1, better than precious ointment. We understand that. You can buy ointment. You can't buy a good name. And the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Do you hear Ecclesiastes 3 here? For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. They'll think about this. Sorrow is better than laughter. I never thought so. For by the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Well, I'd, I'd really rather have a party than, uh, than a dirge. 
And Solomon says exactly the opposite. And remember, he's trying to make the point. You don't know what's good for you. You don't know what's really, really good for you. Here the teacher says thinking about death is better than living in denial of death. And this is kind of surprising at first. Like I said, we can understand the first part of the verse one. Good name, better than precious ointment. I want a good reputation. I can't buy a good name. I can buy ointment. But then he says, the day of death is better than the day of birth. Just this last week, we had a bunch of babies in my house. I don't know what night it was. Just, just a bunch of young babies in my house, nephews and grandchildren. How can you say that there's more joy? You would think there's more joy at birth than at death. He goes on to say in verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of the feasting. Would you really rather go to a funeral dinner than a wedding reception? I don't think many of us would naturally say so. But then the teacher gives us the reason why this is so. This is the end of all mankind. And the living, those who are still alive, not participating personally in the funeral, will lay it to heart. This is the reason. We cannot live, we cannot afford to live in denial of death especially here in America, with 401ks and insurances that we can buy nonstop and health care. Everything in us wants to believe will never die. This is the great lie of Satan that actually keeps many people from considering Christ and his claims and the truth of the cross. Everything in us wants to believe will never die. It's the lie from Genesis 3. You shall not surely die. It's easy to buy into this, and even as Christians, we invest so much time and money subtly trying to insulate ourselves from the uncomfortable but inevitable and ever-approaching truth that we will pass out of this life one day and into the next, which is exactly what led King David to pray, O Lord, make me know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. You're not in control of your life, and you're not in control of the moment of your death. And you wouldn't choose to encounter death, neither would I. I often say I'm not afraid of being dead. I'm just afraid of getting dead. Either way, I'm not in any hurry to experience it. But we can't be in denial of it. There, uh, I believe is a song, Living with Eternity's Values in View. It shapes and changes the way we look at life to be aware of our own mortality. And I do think that Solomon is wise enough to know, and we're all wise enough to know, that that doesn't mean we just sit around and sulk every day. But there's an awareness. I would never choose to think that the concept of death rather than life is good for me. But it is. We have to keep going. A second thing he says, he talks about rebuke and correction in verses 5 and 6. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Who likes being corrected? This might be worse than death. Because <laughs> if you're dead, you, you don't get, no one tells you what to do anymore. But now we have this idea of here's something that we don't naturally think is good for us. And Solomon says, oh, it's so good for you to be rebuked. He doesn't even say instructed. I don't like it. He says rebuked. <laughs> if he had said teaching is good for you, maybe I would be okay with that. But this has the idea that I am wrong and need to be instructed. Um, 
the idea here about, um, uh, is, there's a beautiful picture here. Uh, where am I? I've lost my place. Oh, the crackling of thorns under a pot is like a Hebrew um, um, a play on words. If we were gonna, somebody helpfully put this into English and said it'd be, it might be like saying nettles under kettles. It, it has this play on words thing here that makes it very, very poetic and very, very memorable in the Hebrew. So do you like being corrected? No. Do you like the idea of living in error with no one helping you? I mean, if you got a piece of food stuck in your teeth, do you really want someone to tell you or not? It's a silly thing to think about, right? But you'd, you'd kind of like them to tell you, but you'd be mortified at the thought of it. If you had to choose between door number one, laughter and singing, door number two, the rebuke of the wise, which do you choose? The teacher says it's far better to hear the rebuke of the wise. We need this. You know why? The rebuke of the wise can save our souls. Paul said this to Timothy. He said, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Keep going in this, for in so doing you will save yourself and those who hear you. This was in the context of him having to put up with all kinds of people that he had to rebuke. A third little grouping of Proverbs to help us understand that we don't know really what's good for us all the time and we actually choose things that are bad for us is this idea of patience and adversity. Verses 7 through 10. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And don't be quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. And don't say, I were the former days better than these. For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. No bribes and shortcuts, like the abuse of power. No bullying and complaining. He gives us ideas like anger and nostalgia. Here the teacher cautions us against the abuse of power. But then he begins to take the, tells us to take the long view as we look ahead. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. Patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Don't become nostalgic and long for the good old days. When you're in the middle of hard... You, you feel, the, you feel the, uh, the sense here. When do you need to be patient? When things are going great for you? No, 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 no. And all of us say we want to pray for patience, but we are scared to because you need trials to develop patience, and so there's this chicken and the egg kind of thing here. And so the, the backdrop to all of this is bad situations and us having to be patient in them. And being willing to endure rather than take the shortcuts of corruption and bullying, that's oppression. I don't like this, I'll bully. I don't like this, I'll bribe. I don't like this, I'll bluster. The teacher says, hey, you know what? Sometimes it might be good for you to endure. Yuck. <laughs> Is that good for me? <laughs> That's not good for me to endure. Count it all joy, my beloved brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance or endurance. 
And everyone thinks it's the trial that matures you, but listen to the verse. And let endurance do its work on you, that you may be complete and mature, lacking nothing. You can go through a million trials and never grow, because you just jump out of them as fast as you can. (laughs) Endurance must work on you. A different sermon I said gave some great illustrations. Maybe you're in a job you hate. You might long for the past. You want to escape from the present. But in the meantime, you just might miss what God wants to teach you if you just stick with it. Maybe you're trying to save a marriage. You might have to commit for the long haul before you see any results. It's so easy to long for the old days or to want to give up. Solomon says, hang in there. The end of a thing is better than the beginning, but you'll never see it if you're not patient. Our temptation and adversity is to always look for the easy way out. We can get into imagination and think about the good old days and nostalgia, or we can fight and try to find ways out, and we miss the payback that comes from patiently enduring and looking to the end with true grit. God has ordained these circumstances and knows what is best for us. So look for good even in the face of death. Look for good even when you are rebuked. Look for good even in the middle of a situation that you'd love to escape. These are not things that we would choose, but there could be a lot of good in them that God is trying to give us. Good, if we're willing to learn. Verses 11 and 12 sum it up. What we really need is wisdom. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. It's big picture, way better to have money than not, way better to have wisdom than not. Can it absolutely save you from all of the pain of life? No. Is it good to have in the pain of life? Yeah. When you're wise you're able to see the good even in what is bad. And I'm using those terms relatively. Because I just made a pronouncement to you that is absolutely contrary to what I started with, is that I don't know what's good for you. But in the context of seeing good in the bad, you know my point. So we've looked at have a good day. We've looked at uh, some days are better than others. How do you handle that? Let's talk about the best days of your life. The best days of your life, verses 13 and 14. This brings us to the preacher's two answers about what is good. Remember the questions that started this? The first one was, who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? The preacher just walked through 12 Proverbs to find an answer, and here it is. We find it in verse 13. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he made crooked? How do we know what's good? By meditating on this, that we cannot know what God knows. We cannot do what only God does. You can't fix what God ordains to be hard in your life. To try to put yourself in the place of God is wrong. Instead, look to God in all of the frustrations of life. And the second question was, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And after the 12 Proverbs in verse 14, the preacher says, in the day of prosperity, that's a good day, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made one as well as the other. 
You know you don't like that. I know you don't because I don't like it either. We live with the temptation to have some kind of dualistic theology that actually equates evil and good like the force and like they're getting over on each other. No, friends. God is in control of adversity and prosperity. That's what it is to be sovereign. Yet he is not evil because the hard things that allowed on this earth and in our lives serve an ultimate purpose of good. If we are looking to God in all the tensions of life, we will have the ability to be joyful in the day of prosperity. God will give us the power to enjoy that life. We don't have to worry if it's okay to be happy about something that's good to happen to us. It is a blessing from the Lord. We are free to give thanks to God, and we don't have to figure everything out on the day of adversity. I have thought a lot about a lot of you while I prepared this sermon because I never want to trivialize the pain of friends who have had real hard days. I don't mean to be glib and say it felt good. (laughs) Not in any way. Neither do I want to shrink from declaring to you the eternal purpose of God of doing good for you. We are free on those days to simply consider that God has placed boundaries around us so that we don't know the future. Enjoy the days of prosperity that God gives you, but even in the days of adversity, consider God. You don't know what he's up to. He has good for you and a purpose that you don't understand. When I look back in my life, how could I ever know, ever know, that on the day I got fired, when I have a wife, And seven children at home. Oh, I have a wife who's pregnant with my eighth child. (laughs) How could I know that on that day that I would look back 15 years later and say, what a great day. It didn't feel like that. My wife would tell you that for days I laid in bed with a boulder on my chest like, what are we going to do? That God would use that experience for good. It didn't feel like a good day. You feel me? I know that. True in my life. True in your lives. I do not have the moral clarity or the eternal perspective to know what God is doing on any given day in any eternal circumstance. I do not know. He does! (laughs) praise his name and I'm so thankful I can trust him and I don't have to figure it all out do I or do I not believe the words of scripture that Greg read for us at the beginning of the of the uh, service this morning we know that all things work together for good of those who love God all things all things I invite the praise team back to the platform and our deacons up Quickly, as we uh, transition to communion together, I'm leading that too, so I've kind of saved a tiny little portion of my sermon and a thought about Jesus uh, into this. 
The example of my life may be compelling to me. But in a grand sense, it's meaningless to you. It's not your life, it's just my experience. You didn't go through it. But the words of the Scripture are replete with similar stories to mine. And two come to mind that ought to matter to you um, as we think about Jesus and transition into communion together today. The first is the story of Joseph, who's a little picture of Jesus going into a foreign land, interceding on behalf of his family, God rescuing people through his work. What do you think Joseph's thinking on the day that his brothers throw him in a pit and sell him, think about killing him and sell him into slavery? You know, <laughs> what a good day. <laughs> Remember that day when I got <laughs> No. But what does Joseph say at the end? I mean, after the whole thing's over, years later, Joseph makes this profound statement. You meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. That's profound. But then let's think about Jesus. It's not very different, honestly. Father, if it's possible, (laughs) take this cup from me. In a human sense, Jesus was approaching a bad day, wasn't he? Why do we call it Good Friday? How did that happen? Good Friday. Isn't that beautiful? That because of the work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf, that we would look back on that and not call it Cross Friday, Death Friday, we could call it a lot of things. I'm not even sure. I didn't even look up. Google probably could have helped me. When, why, when and why we started calling it Good Friday. But it didn't actually take that long for it to be good. you understand? I don't know. I haven't listened to the sermon yet, but we were laughing about it in our pastor's meeting. I thought I'd close with this. It was good that day. People just didn't know it yet. Alistair Begg has preached a sermon, I guess, fairly recently because it's hit my Facebook page a few times. And the title of the sermon was, The Guy on the Middle Cross Said I Could Come In. The thief? Maybe he didn't even know Jesus' name. (laughs) Maybe he did. But in the sermon title, it's kind of (laughs) nice. Hey, he shows up. What are you doing here? You had this wretched life. Hey, the guy on the middle cross said I could come. (laughs) It was good that day for that man and has been good for all of us through then that Jesus suffered blood and died in our place. Amen? I mean, it's just beautiful. We don't know. Good days, bad days, not to God. All days. The best days of your life. Guys, come on down and let's, um, let's partake uh, in the Lord's Supper together.